But we turn now to a time of the preaching of God's word. So we begin, I grew up watching a lot of musicals. One of the most famous musicals on Broadway from the last century was Fiddler on the Roof. In that musical, the main characters are a Russian Jewish couple with adult children at the turn of the 20th century. And their marriage was traditional. It wasn't through choice. It was an arranged marriage. And now their modern children are not wanting to have their marriages arranged by the matchmaker. They want these modern things, love marriages. And in the story of Fiddler on the Roof, this problem causes much family tension and much community unrest and even shame. But towards the end of the musical, there's a sweet scene between this couple of 25 years of marriage. And in the scene, the husband, Tevya, asks his wife, Golda, a very simple question. Golda, do you love me? Do I what, she says? Do you love me? She's shocked by the question, and she answers very dutifully, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? And he says to his wife, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. And she says, so was I. But, Tevya says, my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking Golda, do you love you? Do you love me? And she answers, I'm your wife. I know, but do you love me? It's a sweet scene. It's a tender moment. And it's a simple question. And the song ends with the sweet statement, I suppose I do. And he answers, I suppose I love you too. I wonder how would you answer if God asked you this same question? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's the question I want all of us to ask this morning of ourselves. Do I love God? For it is the question that God's word asks of us in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament gospel of Luke and chapter 10. Luke and chapter 10. We're in a series in the New Testament Gospel of Luke. And if you can remember back to our last sermon in Luke more than a month ago, we considered Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable was spoken to a lawyer who had put Jesus to the test. Look with me there at, back at Luke uh, 10 verse 25 and following. I'm going to read a little bit of this in order to pick up the context. Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus makes clear in this passage that the greatest commandments are to love God 
and to love neighbor. And we saw last time in the parable of the Good Samaritan that that parable is often misunderstood. Jesus spoke the parable to a proud lawyer who thought he was good. And the point Jesus makes with that parable is that none of us are good enough to earn eternal life. But Jesus does make clear in the parable of the Good Samaritan what loving neighbor looks like, wholeheartedly helping those that are in need. The Good Samaritan parable makes it clear that we do not love our neighbors as we should. We are often like that lawyer in the passage, seeking to justify ourselves, to prove ourselves right, or at least not that bad. Perhaps at least not that bad in comparison with others. But what about loving God? That part is left out of the section on the Good Samaritan. Do I do that? And what does it even look like to love God and to love him with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength? You see that the lawyer ignored the greatest commandment. Perhaps he thought he had had that already figured out by keeping the commandments of God or trying to. He, he had proved that he loved God, right? I'm doing the right things. Very often in our relationship with God, we can be like this lawyer or like Golda in Fiddler on the Roof. Do I love God? Well, look at the list of things I do for him. I go to church. I work hard. I don't cheat people. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife, a good father, a good mother, a good friend, a good brother or sister or employee. We have a list of the things that we do for God. And it may be, having just read the story of the Good Samaritan, that we now have a longer to-do list on our minds of all of the even greater things we must do for God. But remember, as we saw last time we studied Luke, God does not expect mere keeping of rules. And the reality is none of us can keep his rules perfectly. But what does God want? Well, at the end of the day, God wants our hearts. What is at the heart of the Old Testament law? Jesus asks the lawyer to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But as Isaiah puts it, it's possible to honor God with our lips and yet have our hearts be far from him. Well, in our passage this morning, Luke answers this very question. What does it look like to love God? He is circling back. He's finishing off this section with another short story. And he answers this question, how do we love God? What does loving God look like? And he answers it by comparing two memorable characters. Today, we come to the well-known account of Martha and Mary. So let's skip ahead now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at our section, which is verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. And if you're taking notes, our main point is this. The Christian loves God by listening to Jesus. The Christian loves God by listening to Jesus. I pray this morning that we would see God in the person of Christ as so beautiful that we would love him even more and that we would prove that love by having hearts that are humble ready to listen to him and ready to do his will. Let's begin by reading our passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke 10, 
38 to 42. This is God's word. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Really quickly for context, we are in uh, the part of uh, the second part of the Gospel of Luke, the part that uh, begins in chapter 9, verse uh, 50, in which Jesus has now transitioned from the initial part of his ministry, where he's presenting himself as the Messiah, establishing who he is through his teaching and his miracles. He has now after chapter 9 and 50, turned his face towards Jerusalem. And he is now on his way to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw the mission of the 72, where God sends, where Jesus sends more apostles, more messengers who would go out and prepare his way to go into the towns and villages receive hospitality by those of faith and declare this message of the kingdom that Jesus sent them on. Now in our section, we see something of what this hospitality looks like. Jesus is welcomed with his disciples into a home. And it says this woman, Martha, welcomes them into her home. It looks like this is the same Mary and Martha that we meet in John 11, the famous passage of the raising of Lazarus. According to John 11, Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary. Looks like this is the same household, and it's another event, another time that he's spending with them, because it says in John 11 that they were friends. Martha has invited Jesus and these disciples into her home. Let's look first here at some tension. Let's look first at some tension, some sibling tension in verses 39 and 40. We see, first of all here, Martha's commitment. Martha's commitment. She has taken on the responsibility of hosting Jesus and all of his disciples, 13 men coming to dinner. Imagine that, 13 tired, hungry men. There were many things on her to-do list that day. She had to wash feet. She had to prepare food. She had to make sure the house was clean. There were so many things to do. And we see, first of all here, in this tension between these siblings, Martha's commitment, her responsibility. She takes it on. She invites them over. We see, secondly, not only Martha's commitment, but we see Mary's preoccupation. Mary's preoccupation. While Martha is busy with all of the preparations that it takes to host a party of at least 13 men, maybe more, Mary is sitting at Jesus, the Lord's feet. And it says, listening to his teaching. 
there's nothing like the closeness of family relationships to bring out our differences. There is often among family relationships, a highlighting of differences of temperament or of priority that can often lead to frustration or perhaps even to misreading what someone is doing or meaning by their action. You can imagine Martha, it appears that she's probably the older sister as she's very responsible. And it says that it's her house, it looks like, that she's inviting Jesus and his disciples into. You can think of this responsible older sibling taking her responsibility seriously. And then this slacker of a younger sister, again, needing to be told what to do. Now you can see from Martha's perspective, she has so many things on her mind. She's committed herself and her family as well to hosting these people. And Martha is frustrated because there is so much to do and so little time and so little help. What does Martha need, she thinks? I just need some more help. She's busy with much serving, it says, while Mary sits, simply sits, listening to Jesus. So this leads, this tension leads now to, secondly, a confrontation. We have the tension between the siblings. We now have the confrontation. Mary's frustration boils over. It reaches a boiling point and boils over into an angry tirade. And she's not only frustrated with Mary, it's clear from her statement, she's frustrated with the Lord too. She's angry with Jesus. Listen again to her words. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. From Martha's perspective, this is the only good and right thing to do. We have the Lord and his disciples with us. There's so much to be done. So much hospitality to be accomplished. So many things to finish if we're to have a decent meal. And this boils over into frustration both with God and with her sister, with Jesus and with Mary. I wonder if you've ever felt like Martha. You have so many things on your to-do list. So many things to get done and not enough hours in the day or not enough helping hands that you feel overwhelmed. That perhaps you begin to feel angry at the people around you, that they're not pulling their weight, that they're not doing enough. And that that anger even boils over to not only being angry at the people around you, but being angry at God himself. God, you could change my circumstances. And yet you haven't. And if you just changed my circumstances a little, I wouldn't feel so overwhelmed. I think all of us have something to learn here from this third section. We have the tension. We have the confrontation. But now we have from Jesus a correction. We have from Jesus a correction, a loving correction. Look at verse 41. Look at how Jesus addresses Martha. Does he respond in kind? No, Martha, Martha. A loving rebuke. Martha, Martha. It says in Proverbs that 
uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. You see Jesus doing that here. He gently and lovingly calls Martha's name twice, letting her know that he's speaking to her, not out of anger or frustration with her, but out of love and affection. He loves Martha. He has great and deep affection for Martha. And so he addresses her with a loving correction and a loving rebuke. You, Martha, he says, are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Here we have Jesus' loving correction. You see what he's telling Martha, that she's actually anxious and troubled about too many things. He's saying that she needs to redirect her priorities. As one commentator put it, she had very clear and very strong ideas on what things just had to be done when you were entertaining so important a guest as our Lord. And Jesus realizes that. They don't need a, a lavish meal. They don't need wonderful, crisp, perfect hospitality. They need something very simple, some bread, some food. But what Martha needs is something that Mary can teach her. Only one thing, Jesus says, is necessary. You see, Jesus sees Martha for who she is and sees Mary into her heart, the hearts of both of these women. The issue is not with Mary not doing enough, but with Martha and her expectation. See, Mary is not a slacker that needs to be called out. But in fact, in this case, Mary is an example to be followed. Martha sees in Mary a problem to be solved, a problem to be fixed. Jesus sees in Mary a picture of the faithful disciple. Jesus here defends Mary. Do you know that what Jesus, by defending Mary, is, is doing? Do you know what he's doing here? He's actually making it very clear that women find a place among Jesus' disciples. This was unheard of in Jesus' day. Women were not treated with this kind of respect. They weren't given a place in schools. They weren't treated as students or those that would be able to learn deep concepts through education. And so women were not given education. And yet Mary finds a place seated at Jesus' feet as a faithful disciple and student. And Jesus makes it clear here, there is a place for her among his disciples. You know, Christians have always uh, and often followed Jesus' example here by giving dignity to women. Many cultures, whether it was the Greek or the Roman cultures of Jesus' day, many cultures have been very unkind to women. And yet Jesus isn't. God isn't. God defends the dignity of women. And he counts among his children, among his disciples, among his faithful people, women as co-heirs, fellow heirs of eternal life. He says here, as he does in other places in the book of Luke, that there is a place for all kinds of people, whether it's Gentiles or Samaritans, whether it's men or women. Jesus and God do not see people as we see them through eyes of partiality or prejudice. 
So we have here tension. We have as well a confrontation. And then we have from Jesus a loving correction. But we also have here a reorientation, a reorientation. Jesus is now turning things around for Martha. He tells her, you are busy about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen that good portion. Mary has chosen that good portion. We see here that there is a priority and that there is in us, all of us, the ability to lose sight of what is truly important and to let other necessities, as one commentator puts it, come crowding in and take first place. <clears throat> it is very easy for us to lose sight of those priorities. Amid all of life's duties and necessities, there is one supreme necessity which must always be given priority and which, if circumstances compel us to choose, must be chosen to the exclusion of all others. And as this writer puts it, that supreme necessity is to sit at the Lord's feet and to listen to his word. Uh, the, the pastor Thabiti Anyabwile says this in writing about this passage. Jesus gives a different answer to Martha's problem. Martha thinks the answer is to get more help. Jesus says to Martha and to women and men everywhere, in all your busyness, don't forget that only one thing is necessary. That one thing is not the next task on your to-do list. That one thing is not serving others. The one thing necessary is enjoying the Lord himself. That's what Mary chose and the Lord calls it the right choice and says it will not be taken away from her. Jesus then uses an interesting phrase in talking about the choice that Mary has made. He says she has chosen the good portion. This idea of good portion is a theme throughout the Old Testament that is in reference to the inheritance of God's people. It's interesting that in the section before where the uh, lawyer asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is thinking about the inheritance of the eternal kingdom of God. Here, Jesus says that Mary has chosen her right portion or inheritance. We see this in Psalm 73. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Or Lamentations 3, because of the Lord's faithful love, do we not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. As Thabiti uh, Anyabwile goes on to say, the purpose of eternal life is enjoying the Lord as your portion. The reason we are saved is to enjoy God, to sit with him, to listen to him, to talk with him, to treasure him as our inheritance. The Lord Jesus is the good portion we should choose uh, instead of being busy with all kinds of acts of service. He goes on to write this. Here's what I had to ask myself as I wrote this. If the Lord is my portion and he's never taken away from me, how much of my day 
is he sitting waiting for me to notice that he is the one necessary thing? Far too often, I tragically miss out on sitting at his feet, pushing back on the busyness of the world to savor the love of the Lord. He says this, let us repent together of this and be a people who enjoy the salvation the Lord purchased for us. Let us go to Christ with the comforting promise. It will not be taken away from us. You see what Jesus is doing here. You see the point. How is it that we love God? Well, we love God by listening to Jesus. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. He is God revealed. And we have uh, only to respond to our God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ by humbly sitting at his feet and receiving his word. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus is God revealed. God become man. Jesus came because we have not loved God as we ought, because we have not loved our neighbors as we ought, because we have treasured everything, anything other than him. The Bible calls this sin. Rather than enjoying our creator and worshiping him and serving him humbly, we have taken delight in so many other things, even his good gifts at the expense of loving him as we should. And this is why Jesus came. He came in order to reveal our sin and in order to show us through his perfect life and his sacrificial death, how we too could have our sins forgiven and be reconciled back to God and to be freed once our sins were removed from us, to be able to enjoy this creator-creature relationship that God has created us to. This is the, the wonderful message of the gospel. Christ came to bring sinners back to God. And through his perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross, if we respond to this truth by repentance, turning from our sin and putting our faith in Christ, we can have the joy of the original creation, that original paradise. We too can enter back into a relationship that God has created us for. Friends, if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, know that you were created for God to know him, to enjoy him, to love him, to worship him forever. And you too can have this relationship restored, this relationship between your creator restored through Christ. Turn to him today by faith and know again the joy of a relationship with your creator. This is what Jesus came to bring. It's clear that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And not only does faith come by hearing, but growth for Christians comes by hearing too. It is through uh, receiving the implanted word, James chapter 1, that we grow up. It is by craving and enjoying pure spiritual milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, that we grow as Christian. And so listening to Jesus is not only how we are saved through the gospel message, but it's also how we grow. We, all of us who are God's people, should be regularly sitting at Jesus' feet. And how do we do this? Well, we do this by reading God's word, the Bible. By reading the Bible, we are able to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him and be like Mary a faithful disciple. Now, why do we not do this as we should? I'm sure all of us would say 
We are not those that read God's word, that meditate on God's word, and that enjoy communion with God as much or as often or as fully or as sweetly as we might. Why is that? Well, very often we are like Martha. We're distracted by many things. There are many things that distract us from enjoying Jesus. It may be busyness. It may be a, a full plate. It may be even good things that we are attempting to accomplish, even good ways of serving others like Martha was here. It may be for you, as um, uh, as some writers put it, the tyranny of the urgent. People who write about getting things done talk about the urgent taking over the important and the need to prioritize. You know, Jesus is telling that to Martha here and to us as well that we must be able to prioritize, to distinguish between what is urgent and what is necessary, between what is demanding our attention and what is truly important. Uh, Fabidi says this in terms of one more application from his writing on this section. He says this, husbands, one of the best ways you can love your wife is to make sure that she has time to meet with the Lord. Rearrange the family schedule. Take on more of the household responsibilities. Husbands, rescue her from the children. Do whatever is necessary for her to have adequate time to sit like Mary at the Lord's feet. It is an everyday expression of love that will bless her soul immensely. He says this as a particular application for husband. I think the same could be said for wives too. But I think we can broaden out that application to all of us as Christians and as fellow members. We should be encouraging one another to be spending daily time with the Lord and finding our primary joy in our relationship with Christ. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be able to differentiate between what you think is important in terms of your sense of responsibility and what is truly necessary. All of us must have our hearts drawn out like Martha's was here to be able to question how it is that we spend our time and to answer the question, are we spending it as Christ would call us to? Susan Hunt uh, writes this, a sign of maturity in Christians is that a maturing Christian nurtures other people to grow closer to Christ. In other words, she says, it's not just meeting physical needs that demonstrates a faithful Christian walk, but a concern for others' spiritual needs. And this is something all of us should have a concern for, whether it's parents with our children, husbands with wives, brothers and sisters in the church, or fellow members together. All of us should be concerned, not just with meeting physical needs, those, though those are important, but with nurturing spiritual growth in each other's lives. I'm going to make one Final application here, an application for single. If you are single, I want to point you to read later 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul encourages singles to redeem their singleness. And he tells them that they are in a unique place in life, a place without distractions, a place with much fewer distractions than those that are married and have children. And he encourages them to redeem their singleness in order to be busy about kingdom work, to be busy about ministry. I want to encourage you singles 
to not think of your time simply as your own, to not think of your gifts simply as your own, to not think of your resources simply as your own, but to see all of these things as opportunities to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ, your fellow members here in the church. Well, as we conclude, let me encourage all of us, again, from the words of Thabiti, let us all be encouraged to practice a benign neglect of things that can be neglected in order to commune with Christ, for that is the great privilege of the Christian. Brothers and sisters, do you love God? Do you love God? Well, if you do through Christ and through salvation, let me encourage all of us to demonstrate that love by listening to Christ, by sitting at his feet, and by being like Mary, a faithful disciple. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have made it possible through Christ for your very enemies to be brought into your family, your uh, your, your very infidels to turn and to become faithful disciples. Lord, we know that this can only happen through the miracle of the new birth. And yet for those of us who have come to know you through Christ, I pray that you would help all of us to be growing, not only in being faithful in our actions, but to be faithful in having a heart of love for you that proves itself through having open ears to listen to Christ, to sit at his feet, to become faithful disciples. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.